Thank you for joining episode two of Great Stakeholder Expectations, featuring Pam Markogliese and Lisa Bieber of Freshfields and Pat Tucker and Garrett Musikowski of FTI. Welcome back. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about climate disclosures for issuers. So I think what I'd like to start is we've all been talking about the proposed climate disclosure rules. Where are we in that and, and will it happen? Pam, what are your thoughts here? It's a really good question, Garrett. And it's really interesting because the SEC has been talking about this for a very long time. And it has said for a while now that it's going to propose rules and propose rules and propose rules. And then finally it proposed rules. And so it had at least accomplished that piece of it. And then of course it received, which was not unexpected, of course, but it received a ton of responses and views that are really all over the map. And so I think it is now in the situation of parsing through that and figuring out what happens next. I think that some of the obvious challenges for the SEC here is that the people, and it's all people really, are very much split on many of the issues that are the subject of the rule proposal. And the other thing is that the rule proposal is also pretty significant in terms of its scope. I mean, this is a major piece of rulemaking, and it would impose very significant consequences on companies. And there's a tremendous burden that will be imposed across the map. And there is obviously serious liability issues that would be imposed on companies as a result of the way the rule proposal was drafted. So this is not one of those that's inconsequential or marginal. This will obviously have a very significant impact. And so I think the SEC is very much trying to put all of that together and figure out which way it comes out on this. On the one hand, it's possible that it goes forward and adopts it largely the way it's proposed, scope three and all. On the other hand, it may also come to a point where it just realizes that it's just too challenging the threat of litigation that will almost undoubtedly happen on the heels of this being adopted in its current form will come and um, will mire it in litigation for years to come and may just decide that it's going to adopt a much more watered down version of this that's maybe something more similar to how it adopted the HCM rules a couple of years ago, which were a lot less onerous on companies to put together. So I don't know. I feel like something will happen, but at least from my perspective, I'm not quite sure yet what that might look like. But Pat, are you hearing anything different? Yeah, I think I think it's helpful to take a step back. I think the first is the honest answer is who knows? There's just a lot going on here. But I like to take a step back and look at the political calculus, knowing that the SEC is a political body at, at, at the end of the day, and what may be weighing on its decision here. First and foremost are persistently high gas prices. We cannot understate how immense the political pressure that has created across the administration. I think we have to think about an SEC action that comes out that will almost inevitably drive negative headlines on gas prices is something the Biden administration wants to avoid. That is, I think, an inescapable fact. I I think the other thing to think about there is a a recent win in the kind of broader um, landmark bill that was passed that included meaningful amounts of money on climate, um, I think only heightens their focus on reducing the headlines coming out of an SEC change. Um, I think they feel like they can now claim that they have a win on climate um, and that the the immediacy and urgency behind this rule uh, may have dissipated a little bit. The second, I think, when you're sitting at the SEC versus the broader administration view, I think is to really think about the, the West Virginia versus EPA ruling 
and what that means for their calculus and putting forth a rule of this size and scope, as, as Pam indicated. The number of comments so far, I think, clearly indicates this rule is going to be immediately challenged. It's an important calculus for them. Do they want this rule to be the first one that goes to court under this new precedent set by West Virginia and EPA? And I, I think that there's a fair argument that they're probably tossing and turning over of, you know, maybe maybe it's not. And to Pam's point, maybe we need to water this down and just move along. And so I do think that, you know, we can't escape. There's tremendous pressure from the SEC to do something. But I do think we should also keep an eye on the counterweights um, that I think have been a little bit overlooked lately and are really starting to add up um, into why we have not seen this this rule finalized just yet. Yeah, that's really helpful context, Pat. And I, I agree with all of that. And so I guess I guess we will soon see what happens. But Lisa, almost regardless of what happens with the SEC proposed rule, how do you think climate disclosure is going to play into the next proxy season? I think that the, it's an area where we've seen historical shareholder proposals. And I think there was an idea that if the SEC proposed disclosure early enough, it could affect the number of climate disclosure proposals. But as you and Pat just discussed, who knows what will happen and who knows when. And so betting on the timing of a proposed SEC climate disclosure rule is not something I think that shareholder proponents are going to be willing to do. So they're going to continue to march ahead, kind of full steam ahead. And given some of the, they had some successes this past proxy season and some less than successes, I think there's going to be a retooling of climate proposals, but we're going to continue to see them at similar clips and with similar focus. Yeah, Lisa, I completely agree. You know, I think the potential to mandated climate disclosure from the SEC might add on the margin some extra firepower for those filers of shareholder proposals, but I don't think it's going to be a driving factor for climate disclosure. I mean, looking at shareholder proposals, it's pretty clear that the market expects disclosure at a minimum. The proposals that we saw this year saw that, that requested disclosure alone saw great success. So I think that's kind of more of a, a testament to what this season will look as opposed to the SEC rules. And Garrett, can you talk a little bit more just to level set on, on what we did see this year and where we saw support and where we didn't see support? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And, you know, most of the reports that we read, they you kind of just read that support levels for climate or environmental proposals dropped in 2022. You see BlackRock and other large institutions coming out saying that they supported less proposals. And I think at face value, that's true. But we kind of have to go one level deeper and say, what types of proposals are we talking about, right, before we just lump all environmental proposals into one bucket? And, you know, BlackRock notes that some proposals were overly prescriptive or tried to micromanage the companies. So if we really bucket out a few types of proposals that were overly prescriptive, then we can really get a better picture at how this past season played out. So if we exclude proposals that ask companies to set reduction targets aligned with a specific climate scenario, or if the company had existing targets and the proposal was asking for better targets, those didn't see a lot of support, nor did proposals for scope three in certain industries, and also pushing banks to stop the financing of fossil fuels. You know, A lot of this was partially against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine, but those types of proposals didn't see a lot of support. But if you strip these proposals out and you look at the rest of environmental proposals as a whole, we actually see a great deal of support for the remaining proposals. In previous years, you know, most of the proposals pushed for climate disclosure, and those still fared very well. 
What emerged as a theme with remaining proposals, though, and it's really interesting, is companies that didn't have existing reduction targets and proposals from filers like Green Century and As You Sow asking for reduction targets, these saw a lot of support. Some of them passed and a lot more were withdrawn because the company kind of realized they're behind the eight ball without targets and agreed to do so while engaging privately. It's interesting, Garrett, as you describe the different buckets of the proposals in that way, it sort of makes you realize that, you know, the SEC's rule proposal is obviously very significant, it would have a major impact on companies and compliance and the kind of disclosure that they do. But there's always still a driver behind some of these ideas that really has nothing to do with the SEC. And so whether that's your stakeholders, your employees, your customers, or your investors, there are other forces behind some of this disclosure. And if we go back to some of the themes we've been discussing, this idea of if it, you know, it's, if it's material, companies really ought to think about kind of what they do about that. I think that resonates here as well, which is to say that even if the SEC's proposed rules don't get adopted or don't get adopted in the current form, there are other reasons to consider putting out this disclosure. And many companies have increasingly been putting out this disclosure. And so I think that whether or not the rule proposal gets adopted in its final form or not, is not the dispositive factor in terms of what happens to climate disclosure. And we've seen that with other things as well, right? The If you look at the HCM rule that got adopted, it doesn't require a lot of disclosure from companies, and yet an increasing number of companies are putting out disclosing EOC1 data and those kinds of things. And that's because there continues to be real demand from various stakeholders about that data. I think from my perspective, at least, one of the welcome benefits of doing it this way is that you don't have to put it in your 34 Act reports and you don't have to take higher levels of liability on that disclosure. And I think there's a lot of companies who would welcome not having to do that. So I think that it would be one big difference if the SEC's rule doesn't get adopted in its current form. Yes, let's roll it forward here a bit. Um, we've talked about all sorts of things, but let's imagine the world in which the, the rules are finalized. You know, how quickly do companies need to kind of get their disclosure ready and, and you know, what, what changes do they need to make to their thinking? Um, Pam, do you want to kind of start on what you would be advising your clients of this rule pass tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, look, if it, it passed tomorrow in its current form, as we've been saying, the rule requires a lot of additional information. And therefore, when I think information, I also think controls. Where is this data coming from? How is it getting put together? And how are we all getting comfortable that once it's been disclosed, it's reliable and accurate? And so I would say that companies should start looking at the rule and thinking about the various buckets of information. And if they have to start disclosing it, if it gets adopted, how difficult would it be for them to do it? How much work? And I would try to start scoping that kind of stuff out. There will obviously be some kind of phase-in period. So companies will have a little bit of time to do it. But I think, again, depending on where various companies are in their current progress on some of this stuff, it's going to be a lot of work. So I would start in the first instance by game planning it. The other thing is the rule, as it's currently been proposed, has certain phase-ins that you don't need to do attestations until a year or two out, um, depending on your size. And that's also very helpful. But I think 
one thing companies should think about is that once you've put information out into the public, having to change it because your attestation provider doesn't agree with the methodology or can't quite get there on the numbers the way the company has, having to change it as a result of that wouldn't be great. So there are already many companies that have started working with attestation providers in order to plan out what these disclosures would look like even before the attestation requirements go into place. And so I guess all that to say that you know, there's a lot of uncertainty on the rule. So I think going all in and spending a ton of money and resources trying to figure it all out now when we don't even know what the final rules will look like is probably not the right way to go. At the same time, because anything is possible, I would think that companies would be well advised to at least take stock of where they are on these various disclosure components and think about what the roadmap would be to get there on compliance if in fact the rules did get adopted or those portions of the rules did get adopted. Having a game plan to deal with this, I think it is a very good idea just because of the amount of work that would be required. Pam, absolutely agree. And I think you know we've worked with companies who have had no idea what their scope one through three emissions were and, and seeing that process from learning what scope one through three is and where your emissions come from to having them repeatedly uh, audible or repeatedly disclosed on an annual basis and in line with the GHG protocol, it's a very long process. So while we're thinking this SEC ruling might not come for some time, it might not impact companies for a while with a phase in, I think getting your ducks in a row in that order is, is very important. And, and you could think of it as being prepared for the SEC rules, but at the same time, it'll help you meet your investors' expectations. And so I think it's kind of getting two birds and one stone. One of the areas in the proposed rules, one of the features of the proposed rules, is that there are requirements that hinge off of a company voluntarily setting goals or metrics or voluntarily taking on additional disclosure obligations. And so if a company has certain features, if it has certain goals, it would be required to disclose them, which leaves a little bit of a hole for companies that don't have goals or metrics without a disclosure obligation or requirement. And so if there's a company that is kind of thinking about whether to put goals into place, and we're not sure what the climate disclosure rules are going to be, and we think that there might be some triggers, you know, what's the advice for companies that are in that voluntary area or are today thinking about what their goals and metrics should be? Yeah, I think this is the 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 most interesting and maybe under talked about aspect of the the disclosure rule because I do think it's creating almost a a little bit of headwind in the the market as it relates to climate disclosure right now because I think if you set aside the rules, the reality is that the market was defining this on a very rapid clip. We've talked a lot about here of investor expectations. Garrett talked about kind of proposals that passed that were very clear on you need to disclose and set targets. Those proposals are continuing to pass. And so it really reflects a market expectation that there is a baseline here. So it is interesting how this aspect of the SEC rule probably does give you some pause in thinking about that, but may ultimately put you out of sync with the, uh, the market. Um, and so you kind of have to balance that kind of long-term view of do I want to take this near-term hit to possibly valuation, financing, governance, 
um, as I play a kind of long-term uncertainty game with the SEC, I'm always a little bit more investor-oriented and, and activist-worried. So I would much rather you get in line with market expectation than think about a potential rule. But I'd be interested in, in Pam, how you think about that from your seat, how you advise clients to, to manage this nuance. Yeah, it, it's a very good question, Pat. And it's a little bit of a catch-22. So if you adopt the target or the goal, then you have to disclose it. And if you don't adopt it, then you're struggling with your investors. And I think that at the end of the day, companies need to really think about the business and what matters to the business. And if shareholders are really demanding this and it is important and it makes sense for the business, I think that saying no because you worry about how to manage the SEC disclosure rule it's probably not going to be the most satisfying answer. And I think all of this just really underscores the theme of today's conversation, which is to say, yes, the SEC rules will definitely change a lot. They are very significant and onerous, but there are also a lot of trends that are pushing in the same direction that may cause companies to have to put out similar kinds of disclosures, even if the SEC rules don't get adopted. But fundamentally, I think companies should never lose sight of what is fundamentally important. What is important is the company stakeholders and what winds up being, you know, significant influences on the business. And so I think that um, if a company came to me and were really struggling with this issue, I would say, first, if you decide that this is important to the business, then we can figure out how to draft the disclosures in the ways that, that are most protective. Um, there are SEC safe harbors that you may be able to take advantage of, or at least common law safe harbors that you can take advantage. And we can definitely work on, on some of that to make the language as protective as possible. But bottom line is to keep the important constituencies that companies have happy, because otherwise, as you say, there are activism issues and all sorts of other issues that can be worse than having to deal with the disclosure piece. But, and Pam, I agree with everything that you're saying, but I want to press you a little bit because it is very different to make disclosure in a sustainability report or on a website versus the requirement that the SEC would have, which would be to put it in your 34 Act report. And that's a significant difference in liability. So the market standard is not necessarily to take 34 Act liabilities on this disclosure, but the rules would require it. So how do you kind of handle that navigation? Yeah, well, in the first instance, until the SEC rules get adopted and the company is required to put in the 34 Act report, I would continue to put it in the sustainability report or wherever companies otherwise want to include that information. And then if the SEC, when or if the SEC rule gets adopted, then currently the requirement is drafted that it has to go in, in the SEC filings. And then at that point, there are forward-looking safe harbors that can be implemented and there's opinion language that can be used so that it says, you know, we believe or our goal or our target is to do X. And so there's all sorts of standard cautionary language that companies deal with all the time when they use forward-looking statements. I think the other piece of it, Lisa, that this underscores is the importance of the process and making sure that how those targets or goals are put together is robust and undergoes similar diligence to how companies put together other targets or goals. This shouldn't be something that is pie in the sky or that companies think is a, a good idea, but really that there is a, a robust internal plan that is supportable and that companies think is realistic and that makes sense. And I think all of that put together can really help in, in reducing some of the liability risk. But you're absolutely correct that if the SEC rule gets adopted in its current form, this is definitely going to be something that companies are going are gonna to struggle with. But 
at the same time disappointing investors or being at odds or offside with investor expectations, like serious and significant investor expectations, I think it's also going to be really hard and risky for companies to manage. So I think it's really choosing among the lesser of two evils. And this issue, while I, as a disclosure lawyer, don't ever volunteer to give forward-looking information, I think if there's a considered reasoning that this risk is more worth taking than the risk of running afoul of your investor expectations, there are ways to at least work on minimizing this risk.